1: I in no way had any perception of it actually succeeding. I just knew I needed to try, and that every door that I stepped through, I would look at the next set of doors and say, "Okay, how do I open the next one?" And that was really, I think, what kept me going is sort of actually a short-term timeline and not focusing on like the big problem and the big success or failure, which seemed to almost be insurmountable if you thought about it too far ahead.
2: You're listening to What I Know from Inc. magazine. Today's episode: Don't try to fit someone else's model. I'm Christine Ligorio-Chafkin, Senior Writer at Inc. magazine, here with my producer Josh Christensen. In all the time I've been covering business and entrepreneurship, there's one hard lesson I've taken away, and, and it's really the whole catalyst for this podcast, and that is that there is no one secret to success. Or to put it more practically, if your business model doesn't fit neatly into the same pattern that other businesses have used, that certainly does not mean that you are wrong.
0: Right. Often it means the exact opposite. And of course, there are approaches and techniques that are tried and true in business. But entrepreneurship is often about solving unique problems. And if there was a cookie cutter model to go by, then that problem would already be solved.
2: (laughs) Right. Which is exactly the scenario our guest today found herself in five years ago, when she had an experience that would be the catalyst for her business. She's founder and CEO of EverlyWell, Julia Cheek.
0: Everly Well is a healthcare company that makes home testing kits that allow people to collect test samples for everything from allergies to HIV from their homes and mail in the samples to one of Everly Well's lab partners.
2: Most recently, Everly Well has been developing a COVID 19 at home sample collection kit, and that kit just received FDA approval. It's in part this effort that landed Julia and Everlywell on the cover of the most recent edition of Inc. Magazine, with an article written by our colleague Tom Foster.
0: One of the fascinating parts of her story is that Julia didn't set out to create a healthcare company. In fact, before launching Everlywell, she had no professional experience in healthcare at all. She did, however,
2: have every intention of being an entrepreneur. So, five years ago, when she had a health issue that led to thousands of dollars of lab tests and numerous doctor's visits, and all that led to no diagnosis, she knew there was a problem that needed to be solved.
1: I had good corporate health insurance. I started this process really empowered, and slowly that empowerment was just chipped away. My own agency was chipped away. I wasn't able to get answers. I paid a number of bills. Or costs that weren't covered for lab tests i never got those results um, other than being told i was fine and ultimately never got a diagnosis and i had spent thousands of dollars um, on lab testing because that's what my doctors had ordered without me even knowing it and it wasn't it was this experience that was fundamentally the catalyst but what i've learned over the last five years is that this experience specifically with testing has, shows up in almost the same way for everyone, no matter your demographic, your age, your insurance situation, et cetera. And so that's, I think, why the company has really taken hold in the way that it has, is it was my problem that was a catalyst, but it's a problem that so many Americans face.
2: And what, what did people say, that you know say when you told them about your idea for Everly Well?
1: So I had since business school, um, I was inspired by many founders in business school, especially this cohort of female founders that kind of rose up around me. Um, And I was really interested in being an entrepreneur. It It was this feeling, this deep, deep kind of identity shift for me that if I didn't try this, I would forever regret it. Um, But that took about five years for me to figure out, like I said, where did I want to spend my time and what was, what was going, what was I going to be so passionate about? Um, And so my friends and family largely knew that like in my spare time on the weekends, I would like work on business plans, think about ideas, get together with friends and like whiteboard things out. I mean, these are like not normal social activities, but they were mine. And I think this idea was probably the least well-received. For all of the reasons you can imagine, um, I was a solo I am and was a solo female founder. I'm a non-technical founder. I did not have healthcare background. And it was a space that is not particularly sexy and it's not well understood. And you know, I actually think those make some of the best opportunities. It's a huge space. It's a necessity, uh, but you don't think about it. It's not top of mind. And so, for that reason, my family, my friends, um, thought it was probably not the right move. Uh, my dad actually said to me, like, "You've been working nonstop since the day you were born. Like, why don't you just take a little time off? Uh, why don't you take a break? Like, why rush into the next thing? All those kind of things." Um, And I just, it's not in my makeup and I just was so excited about this and I knew this was where I wanted to, I wanted to try. However, I in no way had any perception of it actually succeeding. I just knew I needed to try and that every door that I stepped through, I would look at the next set of doors and say, okay, how do I open the next one? And that was really, I think what kept me going is sort of actually a short term timeline and not focusing on like the big problem and the big success or failure, which seemed to almost be insurmountable, um, if you thought about it too far ahead.
2: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of founders I speak with say that it's, you know, a series of sort of small steps that leads you to that big vision. Um, What were the what were the first baby steps that you took? um, And what was the very first test you had your eyes set on or, or sights set on?
1: Um, I totally agree that it is it is taking the first few steps and it's just putting one foot after the other. Um, and the first few steps that I took were actually quite a bit different than what I hear the typical advice in starting a company or founding a company. So the first thing I actually did um, was go out and raise a convertible note. Um, I had an angel investor who had this really great idea for um, a little bit tangential, but um, agriculture testing nutrition testing of produce, things like that, and really thinking about testing um, in our environment. And he was super eager and excited to put money into the idea. Um, and that is quite unusual. And there's a reason I did that, which was uh, my husband a year prior had decided to leave his job to bootstrap a business. And so we would be you know, in our 30s with no income. Um, And so just to be, I like to be transparent about this, like I had to make financial decisions that would work for me to enable doing this, which was selling our house, uh, having an angel investor where I could take a small salary to to support. And also I needed funding to hire a development team on contract to find a medical director, to find regulatory experts. This was not an idea that I was going to be able to bring to life myself. And yes, I could sell and convince people to join using equity, but honestly, people were not always just willing to work for free, um, nor do I think that's a fair ask in many cases. And so I really needed the funding to support some of those initial things. And so that was actually the first thing that I went out and did, um, which is unusual. And then the second thing that I did is I started calling labs and I just would get on the phone and call labs and talk to them about, there, there are a number of labs in the country that had at-home collection tests, uh, assays already. And I figured out, in about a week that none of them were going to speak to me. Um, and I also figured out even before that, that I needed a medical director um, in order to build these relationships and really provide the clinical expertise. And so I then immediately turned, I think within four weeks of leaving my job, um, I had hired uh, as a consultant, our first medical director. Um, And those were really the first two steps that I made, which were, where are the gaps in my skill set that I know I'm gonna need in a regulated industry to launch a high quality product? And how am I gonna uh, recruit and compensate these resources to help build this with me? Um, And so that was kind of the first year. I had no full-time employees until about 10 months in, um, right when we launched our first three tests in beta, which was our metabolism test, a um, fertility test and women's health hormone test, and a food sensitivity test.
2: Wow. And had you designed those tests yourself or were they um, were they made by other companies?
1: So interestingly, and probably favorably for us um, at the time, uh, this is back in you know, 2015, 2016, when there was heav- heavy swirls of criticism around blood testing and diagnostics. Um, we never set out to own the test creation. Um, And this is because in my research, I had found there were over a quarter of a million certified labs in the U.S. Many actually focused on quite a large industry of self-collection saliva, urine, or dried blood spot testing with really relevant, clinically relevant, and important assays. So what we did is we just went out and actually secured these lab relationships to run the testing. And that was a way to give them access to more business in a concentrated way. They, they all just worked with individual physician practices. That was their business. Um, and it also enabled us then to quickly get to market and not have to build expertise in an area that at the time didn't make sense for us to own. So that's how we approached the labs. Um, now we did work with the labs on what markers should be included from a clinical standpoint. How do you craft and productize a lab test um, in a way where it ties to an issue area? All of these things where I think 23andMe really paved the path for consumers to put a biological sample in the mail. Think about how foreign that was a decade ago. Um, But then we had to then overcome the next challenge of, you know, blood collection, um, basic lab testing, something different than just the novelty of DNA. And that was where we really invested a lot of our time with our lab partners
2: now around the time you were starting out 2015 2016 if you would ask people to name a female entrepreneur in blood testing uh, a blonde young woman uh, they would not have thought of you and in fact the association would have been very negative I'm assuming that what Elizabeth Holmes kind of that her story and what what happened um, with her company during that time had some negative effects on, on your perception it um, was that the biggest challenge that you went through in the first couple of years as a company, or or were there others as well?
1: Certainly the Theranos uh, Wall Street Journal article coming out, I believe, in October of 2015, it might have been a year later, but roughly around that timeline, had an immediate parallel for investors um, and for media. A couple of things, though. First, we were nobody. I was all, frankly, all worried about it, and we were—we hadn't even raised our first round of venture capital funding um, until twenty seventeen, and that's a—that's a, that's a where I'll where I'll get into one of my bigger challenges. But I—I um, I don't know that we were at the forefront of kind of having to face that parallel at the time. The parallel has actually become more prominent as the company has become more prominent, and. You know, I want to be clear, between companies like Ubiome and Theranos, they both have blonde female founders, they're both in the testing industry, they're certainly, and Theranos was fraud, and in the case of Ubiome, uh, appears to have been, and so I'm not dismissive of that, but at the same time, the complete and total parallelization of me to those two individuals um, has certainly been frustrating uh, because I am blonde and I am female, and that is where the comparisons should end. And there are also dozens of male founders actually developing new blood testing devices um, and new blood testing platforms, many of which Everlywell hopes to work with in the future once they're proven. And I don't believe that you see those same comparisons. And I understand it's an, it's a numbers game as well. There's so few examples that oftentimes it's easy to create that um, archetype however it's still um, something that is just one of several examples i think that female founders face and kind of being grouped together as a cohort despite having no other similar characteristics
2: Right. Absolutely. Um, And tell me about 2017 then. Um, What what? Yeah. What happened when you were uh, was it when you were looking
1: for funding? Yes. So um, so we I set out, as I said, I raised a convertible note from a from a great angel investor who's still um, a big supporter of the company and then went on to raise a seed round where I parallel uh, this was in February of 2016 I raised a seed round of um, just over two million and we were still pre-revenue and I knew we had to raise pre-revenue because I knew to make this work we had gone through beta we were ready to launch but I knew to make this work it would require a significant amount of marketing and and consumer um, investment and I didn't want to get caught into this kind of spiral of of death which is it's kind of working, but not really, but we don't have enough capital to really invest in it to make it work and not knowing if it was actually not having the money or not having the traction. Um, And so I set out to raise, uh, before we had generated revenue and I parallel path VC and angel investors and very quickly figured out that angel investors I think are actually the most risk-taking of the bunch and that we were certainly not ready for VC money. What, What that did help me understand though, is there was a common criticism from, coast, from East and West Coast VCs that I think is shifting now, but back five years ago, was we were located in Dallas where almost none of the VCs I was speaking to had ever done a deal, and they didn't know anything about the talent market, and they didn't know if we could build a huge successful startup there. And so I ended up raising that money, that round from another set of angels, including a physician and diagnostics who led the round, And I moved two weeks later, my husband and I packed up and we moved to Austin. It was an intentional decision to build the company here to prepare us for a Series A. And so in 2017, um, I went out to raise the Series A. Uh, We were, actually I didn't go out, I was approached by one one of the VCs that had kind of turned us down at the seed round. And I went out to raise the Series A and was not getting valuations that I felt were aligned with our traction. So I shifted it to a convertible note, took another couple million in a convertible note, and then I went on um, and raised that Series A nine months later at the end of 2017 from several venture firms that I had then been working with for over a year and talking to. And then from there, I will be honest, things got quite a bit easier. From there, we've had a fairly easy path because of performance of the company, but I I don't want to make it seem as though it was easy early on to raise funding. It certainly was a challenge and I just had to sort of pivot my approach. Um, and that's definitely been the biggest challenge that I've, that I've faced in the early days of the company.
2: Yeah. Um, one thing that I found also, um, aside from the the geog- the geography um, and the biases about geography um, that some VCs have, one thing they also don't love is the potential for regulatory scrutiny, <laughs> <Yes>. which <laughs> <laughs> you certainly are in the field of. Um, how did you talk to them about that? And and then you know maybe you can briefly go into how did that look for you at the time? What did what did it look like to have to deal with the FDA?
1: Um- Great point. And I think it's important to point out that we have some really just forward thinking and and top-notch venture investors. And since the Series A, we have always had separate regulatory um, external diligence on on the business, which I encourage and I want for every round, as well as significant investment in internal regulatory counsel. And so We were able to demonstrate, um, I think, a great thoughtfulness on federal and state levels on every way that we've thought about um, how regulation affects us. Because it's not just the FDA, it's actually more CMS and CLIA, it's telemedicine laws, it's state lab testing laws for consumers and for patients. um, And then it's digital health laws and practicing medicine um, and making sure that we are really clear about our bright lines on each of those issues. And so... We've spent our fair share of dollars on significantly strong regular, regulatory counsel. And that is probably one of the most important decisions I made. Um, and it, it gets our investors comfortable. Um, and it shows an, also a knowledge of where your own gaps are as a founder. I think it's super important um, as a founder to acknowledge what you don't know and to solve for that. Um, and if you think you can know everything, I think that's, that often is a red flag as well.
2: We'll be right back after a quick break.
0: You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So there's this unfortunate reality in our healthcare system where cost of care can be prohibitive for many people. And lab testing is no small part of that. And recently, I've become more aware of that than I ever wanted to be. So about a month ago, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And I know you know this, Christine, but our listeners don't know this. So I just want to preface this by saying, I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. And we caught it early. Thank goodness I have really good health insurance. So I was able to get care quickly. and All of my lab testing was covered by my insurance, but if it wasn't, I would have racked up over $2,000 in medical bills alone just in this past month, and lab testing is going to be a part of my treatment for the next number of years, and that could really be a huge financial burden on anyone who's dealing with some sort of chronic medical issue, where testing is a huge part of that. Not to mention, in cases like Julia's, where she went to the doctor with more nondescript symptoms, and there may be a number of different tests you have to do that lead to no results, and that can be frustrating and expensive.
2: Yeah, you know, I I was just reading a white paper that said there are some thirteen billion tests performed per year in the U.S., which is crazy as a number, and basically one in every four Americans will in their lives have a non-conclusive test result. So that just shows like there's a lot of tests being done. It's a 25 billion dollar industry that Julia
0: was entering into. Which really shows the importance and the power of Julia's idea for Everlywell.
2: This all comes back to the idea of entrepreneurship with the purpose of solving a really difficult problem. If making lab testing more affordable and accessible was simple, then Everlywell wouldn't need to exist. And as Julia has shown us, the evolution of her company did not come without obstacles.
1: What I was comfortable with from day one was really living out the failure. And I knew that I was totally comfortable with the failure and I was going to do everything possible to not fail. So for me, it was really this emotion that I am 100% committed to this and I don't care what people think of me if I fail. I can always go get another job. I don't know what that job is, but I I am employable. What I can't always go do again is have this incredibly inspiring mission and passion and try to go build this business. But I will tell you that I couldn't even imagine getting to a million dollars in sales. Like I couldn't have even on day one envisioned that. Yes, I had a very big vision, but that was seemed so far away. Um, And the challenges seemed so big that I just had to, you know, continue one day after the next and think, how am I going to solve this problem? And what is the problem today that is going to kill the business if I don't solve it and solve that?
2: I love that idea. Um, That seems like such a great way to focus your energy. Like what is the biggest problem that is facing us right now?
1: Yeah, and I think that has actually helped us in recent days as well during this pandemic because I have such an ability as an entrepreneur now and, and five years in to say there are on any given day, there's a thousand problems I'm solving, but that is not what I need to do. That actually will result in failure. I need to solve the one or two problems that are the most important to solve to, to help the business succeed and that looks like very different types of problems at every different stage but when you're in the stage you know what they are Um, and that is I think how you can stay focused and make and lead a team but ultimately when you're on your own also make the right decisions to keep you energized and to stay focused.
2: Let's talk about uh, these current these current days. You know, your company being in the testing world. Um, you know, right away when it looked like um, the pandemic was was spreading, and the coronavirus was coming to the U.S., um, you you responded. Um, you you announced pretty quickly that you would work on a an at-home COVID test.
1: Yes. So we had an interesting and rapid response to this pandemic where I never originally believed that we would be involved in the testing response. Um, And in fact, we had been tracking this as a global pandemic since January because our chief medical officer had been watching it and had surfaced it to me. But just because we saw that and we knew that testing would be crucial, We still did not understand, just like the rest of the country and many labs, um, that there would be such a dearth of testing availability. And so it wasn't until this FDA emergency use authorization at the very end of February that we realized Everly Well could actually make a big impact. And so it was honestly somewhat of an easy decision. And it wasn't my decision. It was something that I brought to the team um, and we talked about at length, the fact that this would be a tremendous amount of work for undetermined impact and how it would feel to do our very, very best to help people and to test people and not know if we would actually be able to make that happen. Regardless, there was a resounding commitment from our team that there was no better use of our resources and our time than to commit to trying to be part of the solution. And so that's what we did. And so we not only committed um, money towards a lab development program for grants, but we also then set into motion developing an at-home test, but also launching a healthcare provider collected test to help get test kits in the hands of people who need them the most.
2: Right. Um, But then as soon as you announced that you were going to be working on a test, the FDA shut down you and other companies, your ability is to actually sell those tests directly. That was in March, right?
1: Right. So it's interesting. We are. And the reason why an FDA emergency use authorization framework was even needed is because it was a call to action for labs that are today um, largely regulated by cms and CLIA to step into the challenge um, and really a call to action to meet for the fda to say hey we want to issue this pro- this emergency use authorization such that we're drawing you all in and getting more testing capacity online it was it was a fantastic um, way to bring about more capacity um, albeit you know perhaps a little bit late in the process and so and so what you have is you have all these companies, us we announced it first. We're following our typical regulations and we are working with labs that have the emerge or that have filed for the emergency use authorization. And then the FDA says, oh, wait a minute, we don't know that we actually meant this could be permitted. Um, and so there was mass confusion from other companies who actually launched before us. It was after we announced, but before we launched. And they stood by their decision, and then the FDA said, no, you can't do that. And so we actually proactively reached out to the FDA, and then we self-determined that we would only launch with healthcare providers until we were able to make sure that we were doing things the right way and according to their guidelines. So we had a little bit of a benefit, honestly, in the, in the waiting period um, in not having to actually launch, and we were able to then make sure that, that we were on the right side of things.
2: What's your analysis of the current system and the ecosystem of COVID nineteen testing? Like, how soon do you think they will be available to non government and non medical organizations to to individuals? Will businesses
1: be able to get access to them by say late summer or fall? Um, yes, I think the answer to that is yes. I want to I want to share a couple of stats that are about lab testing more broadly, which is it's a twenty five billion dollar annual industry, um, and. Lab testing, just any type of diagnostic test, is used in about 70% of diagnoses. So this is an industry that should be able to support the supply chain needs from end to end. But what has happened and why I do believe that this will free up over the coming months, say two to three months, is that what was poorly understood, even by labs themselves and physicians, was every single aspect of the supply chain, which by the way, Everly Well manages end to end for our customers. So sourcing the components, shipping the kits and logistics around shipping to and from labs, getting a provider to collect a sample, getting it to a lab in time to be processed, and then making sure that lab has enough supplies and reagents and capacity and training and platforms to be able to run the tests. And so when you match this all together, if any one part of that supply chain is constricted, the entire process is constricted. And that's why you've seen this failure every step of the way is we, if you're short on one part and you fix that, then the other part becomes limited. And so I do think you've started to see cities like LA um, and other CDC guidance free up for asymptomatic people to get tested. And I do believe you will see a drastic shift in the next three months. It won't be, the capacity won't be immediate though. And I think that's a important lesson for just individuals listening you see these news headlines just because something is authorized does not mean that these companies have the ability to immediately turn it on in a big way it takes time and it takes people and it takes logistics and so that i think um, is why we've continued to see this gap and we still have to catch up there is still a complete shortage of testing in this country and people who need the tests are not getting them I mean, do you think that the long
2: term effects of the pandemic will um, be shown in the changes that in changes in telemedicine and changes in the lab testing system I mean I, I've already had virtual doctors appointments and that's not something that we could even really imagine doing uh, even months ago it's it's fascinating how quickly these things can can shift
1: absolutely I mean healthcare fundamentally will never look the same and I can give you a few examples so telemedicine is up telemedicine visits in March and April were up about 10x. Obviously, Medicare immediately, I think there was a law change to immediately start allowing for telemedicine appointments. Our core business is significantly up in demand, especially for essential health tests. And Quest Diagnostics published that their testing was down 40%. And so if you believe that once people have a digital, health, a digital telemedicine appointment and then they do an at-home test... The thought that they're going to take off three hours from work to go do this in person again, it's just such a better experience. And so if you can have this phenomenal experience in a typically, frankly, low bar alternative, for something that is affordable and that now becomes core to healthcare, so now is covered by insurance, is part of your daily management of your health, is part of something that your doctor prescribes for you, there's just no going back. And, and it is a moment for us um, where not only are people in, the, in culture concerned now about lab testing, but they now understand how much value even in other areas that it has to their lives.
2: That sounds like a super pivotal moment for you. I'm curious what advice, uh, based on everything you've learned over the years, what advice you'd have for folks who are just starting out, you know, who are trying to do what seems like an impossibly hard thing. How can they approach their, their goal or their dream?
1: So I believe being an entrepreneur is the best job in the world. And I would encourage anyone who feels called to do this, to do it. I was listening to a podcast by by Glennon Doyle I'm reading her latest book Untamed and she was talking about how if you think you want to be a writer because you think about writing a lot people who don't want to be writers don't think about that all the time right like people who don't want to be writers don't think constantly oh I wish I was a writer why am I not writing all those things if you want to be a founder and if you feel called to do that to your core and who you are as an identity you should be a founder and you were made to be a founder. And I do want to acknowledge it is incredibly difficult. It takes incredible resilience and it takes a never give up attitude. You cannot give up, there's always a way. And that is very difficult to sustain over years and years and years. And you know, I'll tell you, my husband has amazing business ideas. He probably is like the most idea rich person that you've ever met. And oftentimes companies launch and are very successful. And he says, well, I had that idea. And I always say, listen, you know, the idea is really only like 5% of it, maybe 1%. And the idea matters. It matters so much to your own inspiration and to your own energy well, so that you can really pull from that in the hard moments. But it, does, it, it has very little to do with the actual success of the business.
2: Yeah. So what's the other 95%? Is it the hard work? Is it the resilience? Is it is it a combination, a combination of all sorts of things? And it's
1: some timing. It's some external factors, right? I think we have to acknowledge that. Um, it's certainly some external factors. You can be too early or too late to market. Your idea hits. I mean, listen, great businesses that travel businesses that we're launching right before this, right? Certainly it is some external factors. Um, it is some luck, but it is largely resilience and hard work. And listen, I'm not a particularly self-disciplined person in other areas of my life, but I am incredibly self-disciplined when it comes to the business and when it comes to work. And that is, I think, a reason for what is now the team's success. It's now actually not mine in any way, but what got me to the point of being able to build a great team and being able to lead them.
2: And resilience is a word that keeps coming up here. How how do you build up the resilience that it takes to get through those especially those early years and that you've had to personally tap into for several different challenges along the way? How do you how do you build and maintain that resilience?
1: Yeah, I think one thing to know is that being a founder, especially a solo founder, is a very lonely job. And I have found great benefit in having small groups of founders and CEOs that are are basically like small therapy groups, right? Some are more formal than others, some are informal. Um, but unless you have been a founder, it's very hard to actually ha- understand the full experience. And that has been helpful in moments when you don't know what to do or you don't know how to move forward. Um, and also having family support um, or individual support if you can. I mean. Uh, One of the most important decisions, if not the most important decision I made is who my life partner was going to be, because he has always encouraged me. And I will say there are many moments where I was on the brink of quitting many, many moments. But what matters is that I didn't. And it was often someone or something who who pushed me to keep going. It is certainly not because I am any different from anybody else. I am, I am no better. I am no worse. I am no smarter. I, I have no particular ability beyond what anyone else would have to do, what I, to do what we've done at Everly Well. But it was the right moments to keep going and just not to quit.
2: So knowing what you know now, what advice would you um, have given yourself when you were just starting out five years ago?
1: So I think what is most interesting, perhaps, about being a first-time founder, which I am, is you don't actually know how fast things should go. And I had a really interesting and and defining moment for me as a founder where where we launched in beta in 2016. And for the first five weeks, we couldn't get any traction. Nobody was buying. We weren't spending like a lot of money, but we were doing micro tests. We were doing, you know, SEO trying to get people into the funnel, trying to get people to convert and nobody was buying. It was five weeks. And I woke up middle of June one day and I told the team I was going to give our angel investor and the seed round money back to the angels. And we were all going to go home. And I had an early employee who said to me, Julia, it's only been five weeks. And I said, I know, but if it was gonna work, we would be seeing more, more now. And so we agreed as a team, and my team was like three people, me and two people. <laughs> and we agreed as a team to give it two more weeks. And I started managing this bend myself. We did a bunch of micro tests. We brought on a very small kind of specialized person to look at certain certain tests on acquisition. And I remember the moment, it was 4th of July weekend in 2016, when we started getting traction. It was like a light switch. And my phone, at the time, I had my phone on so that I could hear every single transaction come through. And about a week later, my husband said, you're going to have to turn your phone off because your phone is dinging every single minute. And then those minutes became seconds. And then those seconds became multiple purchases per second over the years. And I share that because I actually think it was an advantage. I'm very glad we didn't give up. But if you had said to a VC, how long does it take to get traction? They wouldn't have said, you know, seven weeks. They probably would have said six months to a year. And so by the end of that year, we were on a multi-million dollar run rate seven months after launching, because my expectations were so high because I didn't know that I needed, that I could lower them. And I think that's really powerful is don't be grounded in what everybody else has done in, in how long it could take, what you who you should hire, how you should raise money, what idea you should go after. Do you have the right experience or not? All of those questions don't really matter at all. And what really matters is are you going to go after this thing that you believe will change your life and change other people's lives? And then you tie your own expectations to it. And that has served me really well throughout the years in any type of critical decision. But that was a very early situation where it ended up being a big success for us.
2: I love that. Don't try to fit someone else's model.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Because it's that's part of what makes you really unique as a founder, is not fitting a model. It's this, it's this constant tension that I, I've never understood, which is criticism of founders or founders that don't fit an archetype or that don't fit the pattern. And yet entrepreneurship and being a founder should be about breaking the mold and having radical ideas and not looking like everybody else or having the same background or coming at it with the same idea framework. Um, and so it's so interesting that that, Migration towards a norm still exists, right?
2: Right. It's so fascinating because you're supposed to take these huge risks, but you also need to, you know, fit some magical pattern that that Sandhill Road has decided they need to match. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And so, um, I I have always been someone who marched a bit to my own drumbeat. I was an equestrian in school. Um, I was very academic, and you know, I, I I had a strong friend group, but I was never one who sort of went with the crowd and I was okay with that. And I also have done that here. You know, I never, I never really ascribed or maybe subscribed to other people's criticism or fear of their criticism. That doesn't mean to be reckless, but it means a certain amount of self-assurance where you can define your path and you can define your expectations and what you want to do. And you know, if someone else had thought of the idea and if anyone else thought it was a great idea, it would already be done. Of course, nobody else thinks it's a great idea because, you know, it's, it's like literally what entrepreneurship means is you have an idea <laughs> that other people think will not work. And so I think that framing is so helpful when you're going through this process.
2: Thank you so much, Julia Cheek, for being with us here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: After talking to Julia, what's really impressive to me is that she was doubted at every step along the way to starting her business. Even back when she was just charting out startup ideas, of them, Everly Well was the least well received. She didn't have experience in healthcare or diagnostics, and she was a solo female founder, an underrepresented and underfunded group in entrepreneurship. No one really seemed to believe she'd succeed at it. Even she didn't believe she'd succeed but she had the tenacity to keep going at every step. And she took that series of small steps to create a solution to a problem she had faced that she knew was real. Sure, she doubted herself, just as others had, but she kept going and she keeps going. And over time, she's come to see that some of what made her idea easy to doubt actually made it stronger. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Since we're just starting out, we'd love if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We'd also really appreciate it if you could recommend us to a friend or help recommend us to a lot of people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I know it seems like a small thing, but your thoughts really do help when it comes to making our podcast better and helping other people find us.
2: You can also drop us a note anytime at whatI Know at com. Let us know what you think about believing in your own idea even when no one else does. Also, who else should we have on our podcast? Let us know whose story you'd love to hear. Our producer, who is currently spitting into a vial, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.